You're listening to the Fueled and Free podcast. I'm your host, Margaret, a holistic nutritionist, bringing you real talk and thought-provoking conversations on food, the wellness world, women's health topics, and life. Remember, the information shared in this podcast is not to be taken as individual or medical advice. Hey, hey, welcome back. Today, we're diving deep into a vital organ that often doesn't get the attention that it deserves. Today, we're talking about the liver. We're going to uncover the critical role that it has in supporting your hormones, regulating your metabolism, supporting detox, your blood sugar, cholesterol, your thyroid. And we're going to explore some ways that you can support your liver through diet, strategic supplements, and discuss some helpful tools like castor oil packs and even coffee enemas. Plus, we're going to touch on the signs of what a sluggish liver actually looks like. What does that feel like? How can you tell if your liver might be struggling to detoxify? What overburdens this vital organ? How to assess its health, maybe through some testing. So stick around. It's going to be a good one. Your liver is a large organ that is situated on the top right of your abdomen. And like I said earlier, super, super crucial to metabolism. It breaks down and builds up various chemical substances that are involved in our cells' day-to-day function. It's known to have more than a thousand functions. In traditional Chinese medicine, they call the liver the architect or the general of the body. TCM also believes that the liver is associated with the storage and regulation of emotions. This is actually very fascinating. So according to TCM principles, the liver's primary role is to ensure the smooth flow of chi, also known as energy, and blood throughout the body. And so when that liver chi becomes stagnant or blocked, it can lead to emotional imbalances, particularly anger, frustration, and irritability. Those are the main emotions associated with the liver. Uh, TCM views emotions as very interconnected with physical health, um, and they believe that emotional disharmony can impact the liver's function and vice versa. So there's kind of a little tidbit FAQ on the TCM approach to liver health. So next, I want to dive in on some of the key functions of the liver. Uh, Liver plays a really important role with your gallbladder. They work together to aid in digestion, specifically with fats. Your liver produces bile a fluid, which is super essential for breaking down those dietary fats that you're eating. That bile is then transported to your gallbladder for storage. And so then when you consume a meal that contains fats in it, that gallbladder contracts, it releases bile into your small intestine, helps break down those fats, make it easier for your body to break down. Um, And this process aids in the absorption of fats and fat-soluble vitamins. In essence, the liver produces bile, gallbladder stores it, releases it as needed. That's kind of what you need to know. Sometimes people do not have a gallbladder. They have it taken out for whatever reason. Can you live without a gallbladder? Absolutely. Many people do. In fact, some people have their gallbladder removed and they have very few problems. But by and large, I do see a lot of digestive issues pop up after we lose the gallbladder. And unfortunately, Doctors kind of make it sound like it's not a big deal to have the gallbladder removed, but it is a really big deal if you're not doing digestive support after that gallbladder is removed. So what happens is when that gallbladder is taken out, bile flow continues into that small intestine, which can lead to challenges in digesting those larger or really fatty meals. You hear a lot of people after getting their gallbladder out say that 
they just really struggle with eating things like dairy or ice cream or steaks or, you know, those bigger, heavier meals with maybe more protein and more fat. Some people experience symptoms like diarrhea or loose stools, especially after eating. Some people do adapt over time and they can make changes to kind of manage these symptoms. But I would say that if you do not have a gallbladder, for sure would incorporate something known as ox bile, O-X, B-I-L-E. I will link a recommendation in the show notes here. This is not an episode about the gallbladder, but we can't talk about the liver without incorporating how it works with the gallbladder. They're two really interconnected organs, but ox bile is something that I would highly recommend incorporating with your meals to improve your digestion of fats. We do see a lot of issues with digestion and how it can affect your overall gut microbiome when bile flow between the liver and gallbladder is disrupted. So moving on, liver affects your cholesterol, okay? Plays a really important role here. It produces cholesterol and it controls its levels in the bloodstream by removing excess cholesterol and packaging it into LDL, also known as low-density lipoprotein. LDL is commonly known as the quote-unquote bad cholesterol. And so it packages it into LDL for transport to other tissues. The liver also synthesizes HDL, high-density lipoprotein, often referred to as the quote-unquote good cholesterol, which helps remove cholesterol from the bloodstream and transport it back to the liver for disposal. This is a kind of finely tuned process that ensures your body has an adequate supply of cholesterol for essential functions. Our body needs cholesterol to function, okay? While it also prevents excessive cholesterol buildup, which we know that can contribute to cardiovascular diseases and different types of metabolic issues when our cholesterol levels are not well managed. We can see how if someone is having issues with the balance of their cholesterol levels, just throwing a statin on the problem without talking about the liver is largely missing the big picture here. Your liver also plays a pivotal role in regulating your blood sugar levels. So it will store glucose as glycogen when those blood sugar levels are high. It also will release that into your bloodstream when your glucose levels drop. In times of stress or fasting, your liver's ability to modulate and regulate blood sugar levels is really, really crucial for sustaining energy for your body and just ensuring that your overall metabolic processes remain stable. And so this is where if someone's liver is not optimal or not detoxing or sluggish, if you will, um, the balance of blood sugar can really, really go haywire here. And I'm going to give you a specific example of what I'm talking about. So one of the common things that we can see happen is middle of the night waking. Believe it or not, a sluggish liver can contribute to middle of the night waking due to its role in glycogen storage and blood sugar regulation. And I'll explain more. The liver stores that glucose as glycogen, releases it into the bloodstream to maintain your blood sugar levels during periods of fasting, such as overnight when you're sleeping. And so if your liver is not functioning optimally, it may not store glycogen efficiently, which will lead to lower blood sugar levels during the night. And when those blood sugar levels drop too low, it can trigger the release of stress hormones like cortisol and adrenaline, which can wake you up. In fact, some people will wake up middle of the night and they'll even physically feel maybe their heart's racing or they just feel like they're jolted wide awake and they have a really hard time falling back asleep. 
This disrupted glycogen storage and blood sugar regulation can contribute to really interrupted sleep patterns and nighttime wakenings. And so for some people, the solution here is obviously working on improving your liver's health and doing some, you know, modalities and and making some changes to improve your liver's ability to store glycogen effectively. But for some people, even just hitting the body with a little bit of carbs and some protein or maybe some fats, just a small meal right before bed to deliver some energy to the body that the liver can store as glycogen is a, a little solution to keep the liver fueled so that you don't have that middle of the night waking. Moving on, your liver can also play a huge role in your estrogen metabolism. It processes and detoxifies estrogen hormones that are circulating in your body. It converts them into less active or what is known as more water-soluble forms, which then gets eliminated through your urine or through your feces. This is really, really important for keeping those estrogen levels balanced. And so if someone is showing signs of estrogen dominance... Um, which can look like more painful periods, more heavy periods. Estrogen dominance is associated with endometriosis, uterine fibroids, cysts. It's associated with swelling and fluid retention before your period, increase in PMS, headaches, acne. Any of those PMS symptoms are often associated with estrogen dominance. It contributes to difficulty losing weight or weight gain for women And so if your liver is overwhelmed or not functioning optimally, it may not efficiently metabolize estrogen, which can lead to further hormonal imbalances and an accumulation of those less favorable estrogen metabolites in the body. Liver is super, super crucial for optimal hormones here. Your liver indirectly influences your gut microbiome, and this is through its role in processing and detoxifying substances. When your liver is functioning optimally, it helps remove toxins that we're exposed to, metabolic waste products, any harmful compounds from the bloodstream. This reduces your body's overall toxic burden. It creates a more favorable environment for the growth and health of your gut microbiome. Liver dysfunction or impaired detoxification will result in an accumulation of toxins in the body, which then has a negative impact on the gut microbiome and leads to a lot of dysbiosis where we see an imbalance in gut bacteria and a lot of gastrointestinal issues. Let's talk about how your liver affects your thyroid. So number one, the conversion of thyroid hormones. Your thyroid gland primarily produces two thyroid hormones, T4 and T3. T4 is the inactive form, and T3 is the active form of the hormone, which exerts the most physiological effects on your body. However, most T3 is not directly produced by your thyroid gland. It's instead converted in various tissues, including the liver. T4 is converted into T3. This conversion, again, mainly happens in your liver. It also happens in your gut as well and other tissues. It's very essential for your body to have an adequate supply of active thyroid hormone. Your liver plays a role in the metabolism of thyroid hormones. It helps clear excess thyroid hormones from the bloodstream. It prevents an excessive buildup that could lead to hyperthyroidism. Um, Your thyroid hormones, particularly T4, 
are bound to carrier proteins in the bloodstream, such as thyroxine binding globulin, also known as TBG, and albumin. The liver produces and releases these carrier proteins, which then transport thyroid hormones throughout the body. Any changes in the levels of these carrier proteins can influence the availability of your thyroid hormone to actually get to target tissues. Going back to the discussion about bile, which I talked about earlier, liver produces bile, which is necessary for the absorption of fat-soluble nutrients, also including iodine. Iodine is an essential component of thyroid hormones, and proper absorption is crucial for thyroid health. So if someone is showing low iodine, which we see that on a urine test, see a lot of low iodine, We have to reverse back and look at why is someone not, is it a dietary issue where they're not getting enough in their diet and there's a a nutrient deficiency there, right? Or is it going back to the liver? Also, the liver plays a role in the conversion of T4 to reverse T3. So this is a mechanism that the liver can do where it can convert T4 into what is known as RT3 or reverse T3 which is biologically inactive, high levels of reverse T3 can be a sign of impaired liver function and can contribute to further thyroid hormone imbalances. Reverse T3 essentially pumps the brakes on your metabolism. If you're not familiar with reverse T3, we often see this go hand in hand with high cortisol, trauma, low calorie diets, heavy metals, Nutrient deficiencies like low zinc, low selenium, low iodine, autoimmune or chronic infections, even like Lyme, mold, uh, even gut issues like candida can go hand in hand with elevated reverse T3. Let's discuss some signs of a sluggish liver. How do you know if your liver needs support? Well, if you're a human walking around in 2023, your liver probably needs support. I've even seen markers on tests for younger children that show signs of needing liver support. So I'm just going to put that out there. Most of us need to intentionally do some things to support our liver. Top signs I would say would be fatigue and low energy levels, digestive issues like bloating, constipation, even acid reflux, skin problems such as acne, eczema, even skin itching, any hormonal imbalances like estrogen dominance paired with low progesterone, irregular menstrual cycles, your PMS-related symptoms, often can point back to a sluggish liver, loss of appetite, brain fog, increased sensitivity to chemicals. These are the people that they walk by a bed, bath and beyond at the mall and they get a headache or they're super sensitive to different smells, bad breath, joint pain, dark circles under the eyes, mood changes, gallbladder issues, dark urine, and then your more serious symptoms are usually jaundice. That would be a yellowing of the eyes and of the skin. Now I want to talk about what overburdens the liver. This is just as important as figuring out how to fix a sluggish liver. Number one we see would be, this is an obvious one, most people probably know this, but excessive alcohol consumption. I know that the question often comes up on what is considered excessive. I will say, I think this is very individual to I don't know. I have conflicting thoughts on this when it comes to the alcohol discussion, because some people are in a health situation where they would really benefit from doing a solid 90 
90 days, minimum six months of no alcohol and really giving their, their body time to heal and giving their liver an opportunity to regenerate, right? Especially if you're a person that's coming off of a, a lot of consistent drinking, multiple nights a week of drinking alcohol and, and not just pouring a small glass of alcohol. That's the other discussion is what's considered a drink? Are you drinking, you know, a shot of vodka with a little bit of seltzer or are you having a six ounce pour of wine? Are you actually drinking what's considered one drink? Or is the, you know, the nightly glass of wine look like a 12 ounce pour, right? I will say Andrew Huberman, Huberman Lab, I will link his podcast episode. I think he did such a solid deep dive on alcohol and explaining the mechanisms of how alcohol affects your body and what is considered excessive, what's considered moderate, what's a safe quote unquote amount to drink. The reality is there really is not a safe amount of alcohol to drink on the regular. It is a toxin. It is poisoning your body. I do personally drink alcohol. I have massively reduced the amount of alcohol that I that I intake because my body just doesn't do that well with it. And so I more or less drink alcohol in the context of like, we're going out for a date night and I choose to have a single drink or we're socializing, but on the regular, it's not a really consistent part of my routine. Next, I would say processed foods that are high in sugar and unhealthy fats. We're talking about your refined carbs, refined grains, your processed shelf-stable foods, even the ones that maybe they're organic or you know, they might be a better alternative than your well-known like junk foods, right? They're still processed and they still have the refined grains and the, you know, the enriched fortified flours. They're really not offering a lot of bioavailable nutrients and they have things like artificial flavors or quote unquote natural flavors in them. And we really don't know like what actually that is. And often those are artificial ingredients that your liver has to process through anything that you're exposed to that's not natural, your liver has to process. Um, Even exposure to pesticides like glyphosate, buying organic produce, especially where you are eating the skin, like your berries and your peaches and your apples and things like that, um, really trying to lower your toxic exposure. Very, very important. Environmental toxins, mold overburdens the liver tremendously. Excess iron, We do not want to be supplementing iron. There is never a situation where I believe someone should be supplementing iron. I think there are other ways that we can increase someone's iron absorption that don't involve supplementing iron, including taking prenatals with iron or taking multivitamins with iron. Read your labels and try to avoid eating processed foods that have iron added to them. This is really common to see with your refined grains, like your your snack foods, cakes, cookies, If it says fortified or enriched cereals, they often have iron added. This is not good for our body. We should not be eating inorganic added iron. It's literally a metal. It makes no sense to me. I could go on. I need to do a whole episode on iron, but that's a whole other discussion. So next, lack of sleep, obesity. When you have excess body fat, particularly abdominal obesity, this is strongly associated with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease which can progress to more serious liver conditions if it's left untreated. Dehydration, sedentary lifestyle, we know contributes to obesity and insulin resistance, both of which can negatively affect your liver's health. 
certain medications, long-term usage of painkillers, hormonal birth control. This is really important one. I see a lot of sluggish liver markers related to poor liver health after someone's been on birth control for a while, taking statins, even over-the-counter painkillers like acetaminophen or antibiotics can overburden the liver. Let's do a quick brief overview on how the liver actually detoxifies because you hear a lot about like supporting detox and many of us don't know what that actually really means. And so I'll take like three minutes and give you a crash course on this if you're interested. Your liver detoxes in a process with two phases. It's known as phase one and phase two liver detoxification. These phases work together. They neutralize and eliminate toxins, drugs, hormones, and various metabolic byproducts from your body's day-to-day function. This has a significant impact on a woman's hormone levels and a man's hormone levels, especially your estrogen, okay? This is where when someone is showing signs of estrogen dominance, we got to support that phase one and phase two liver detoxification. So the function of phase one is it involves the activation of toxins through these chemical reactions. It makes them more water soluble and easier for phase two to then process. This phase can generate some intermediate compounds that can be actually harmful if they're not quickly neutralized in phase two, liver detoxification. There's certain enzymes that are involved Cytochrome P450 is the primary enzyme responsible for this reaction. There are nutrients that really support phase one, which we're going to dive in a little bit later about the nutrients. But real quick, I'll just blast through these. Your B vitamins like B2, B3, B6, B12, and folate. Antioxidants, substances like vitamin C, vitamin E, glutathione help protect against potential harmful effects of these phase one intermediates. Minerals such as magnesium, zinc, and iron are cofactors for these phase one enzymes. And then some phytonutrients, certain plant compounds that are found in cruciferous vegetables that found in uh, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, cauliflower, um, often known as, you've probably heard maybe the compound known as sulforaphane. This can help modulate phase one detox. So let me move on to phase two. The function of this, this is known as the conjugation phase where the activated toxins from phase one are bound to water-soluble compounds. This process makes it easier for your body to excrete these toxins from the body, and they typically get excreted through your urine or your bile via our stool. This is why pooping every day is so darn important. Nutrients that support phase two, we need amino acids here, okay? Glycine, glutamine, taurine, cysteine, Guess where we can find a lot of these essential amino acids? Animal protein. We also need glutathione. This is an antioxidant that plays a central role here, particularly in conjugating and neutralizing those toxins. Methylation nutrients, substances like choline, methionine, betaine are involved in this process. Sulfur-containing compounds like MSM, And sulfur-rich foods like garlic or onions can support sulfation here. And glucosinolates, this is found in cruciferous vegetables. These compounds can support glucuronidation. So we can see that having a balanced diet with animal proteins and plants is really, really crucial for supporting this action or these mechanisms here. 
And so let's just segue right into diet, because this is a question we get a lot here. It's very confusing right now. There's a big push on Netflix. If you log on to your Netflix account, which we have a Netflix account, the first thing on the on the home screen is all about the Blue Zones documentary. In fact, I've had a few clients message me or they've brought it up on Zoom calls about, hey, I watched that Blue Zones documentary and they're really pushing not eating animals and, you know, just doing a lot of nuts and seeds and legumes and, you know, this this plant-based diet, right? And this is where I say balance is key here. Yes, we need plants. I just went through some of the mechanisms of phase one and phase two detox here. And there are compounds that we get through plants that support that, right? But we also need animal proteins. These are a complete source of your essential amino acids. And we need amino acids to support detox. And so if someone comes to me and they have uh, hypothyroid or thyroid issues and their cholesterol levels are off and they have a really symptomatic menstrual cycle and they wake up in the middle of the night. These are common, common symptoms that I see a lot. The first thing I ask on our first call is, let's talk about your diet. How much protein do you eat every day? We've got to get in that protein as a male or female, okay? Minimum 100 grams a day here, um, 0.8 to 1 gram per pound of your ideal body weight is what you should be aiming for every single day. In addition, other things to consider, fatty fish like salmon, really rich in omega-3s, and they provide antioxidants that can help to cleanse the liver. Cruciferous vegetables I touched on earlier, like broccoli, cauliflower, they provide many necessary nutrients and phytonutrients. I will say that some do really struggle to digest cruciferous vegetables. And so getting in some of those compounds that you find in cruciferous vegetables like sulforaphane can be more doable by taking a supplement versus trying to eat a lot of broccoli. Like me personally, I don't do well with lots of Brussels sprouts and cauliflower. I I seem to do okay with broccoli, but I don't eat a lot of cruciferous vegetables. And if I do, it's a small side. And so if there's uh, markers or if there's signs that I need help with that, I'm going to get in those nutrients elsewhere. Um, There's a lot of herbs that you can incorporate too. So, and I'll talk about that in a moment, but beets and dark leafy greens provide antioxidants and really help to cleanse the liver. Our uh, local Costco has had um, steamed beets pre-packaged. There's nothing added. There's, they're super clean. And that has been an easy way for me to incorporate beets into my routine. Um, Some herbs that I want to touch on for supporting your liver. Number one, milk thistle. This is known to have anti-inflammatory and detoxifying properties. It has a lot of liver protective benefits to it. And you can incorporate milk thistle either through a supplement. You can take it in a tincture. You can drink it in a tea. Dandelion root is another helpful herb. So dandelion root is thought to stimulate bile production and support liver function. It also may have diuretic properties. I often will recommend drinking dandelion root via tea. Um, Dandelion root tea is also high in certain nutrients like vitamin K and potassium. Turmeric, or also known as curcumin, which is the active compound in turmeric, That has anti-inflammatory and antioxidant properties, may help protect the liver from damage. Anything that's an antioxidant 
is going to help support your liver detoxification. Another herb that's often found in a lot of supplements is artichoke leaf, which is often found as an extract. It's believed to stimulate bile production and also improve digestion. So again, you'll see that in a lot of different compounded liver supplements where they'll have a small amount of artichoke leaf extract in it. Another is shisandra, which is a berry that's used in traditional Chinese medicine for liver health. Another one you'll often find in supplement blends or tinctures and things like that, known to support liver detox and can protect against liver damage. And then last, I want to touch on burdock root, also believed to have a diuretic and blood cleansing properties. I've seen this incorporated into a lot of tinctures, which can overall help support your liver health. I do like to take a food first approach when it comes to supporting your health. I'd also really work to make sure you're getting enough vitamin C rich foods. I'd say most people are not getting enough vitamin C in their diet, which you can bridge the gap with your diet by taking a whole food vitamin C supplement. But your citrus fruits are going to be really high in vitamin C, your berries, even your tropical fruits, melon, citrus juices like orange juice, leafy greens, cruciferous vegetables, bell peppers, tomatoes, even potatoes are high in vitamin C. You'll even find some vitamin C in herbs and spices like parsley, thyme, cilantro, basil, although I'd argue you'd have to probably eat a lot of those herbs and spices to get a high amount of vitamin C, but they're in there. They're also green peas, Brussels sprouts, uh, winter squash, which is going to come into season here soon. And now I want to move on and talk about some supplements for liver health. I do incorporate liver supplements for a lot of clients. I find them to be very, very beneficial. So first one I'm a big fan of, which I've taken this off and on for years, is N-acetylcysteine, commonly known as NAC. It supports glutathione production, which is a potent antioxidant that supports in detoxification. Uh, NAC is just known to be very anti-inflammatory. You can look up the benefits at a minimum 600 milligrams, most people can benefit from even taking more. Um, so that's something that you can take. Vitamin B complex. Some people don't do well with vitamin B supplements. So that's where you have to kind of just, it is a little bit trial and error. I personally don't do well with most vitamin B complex supplements. They make me feel really anxious. But increasing your intake of vitamin B is going to be very beneficial for your liver and your detox pathways. I personally get in a lot of B vitamins through red meat. I take a beef liver uh, supplement. So I take desiccated beef liver. I also incorporate bee pollen into my diet almost every single day. And bee pollen is really high in B vitamins and a bunch of micronutrients, including copper, Um, So that's how I really work on B vitamins. You also, here's another one that I'll quick throw out there is non-fortified nutritional yeast is really high in B vitamins as well. Uh, Nutritional yeast is commonly used in dairy-free recipes like vegan or dairy-free cheeses or sauces. It has kind of a cheesy, savory flavor to it but you can utilize it in food all the time. So I will sprinkle that on like uh, steamed or roasted veggies. If we do, uh, we do like potatoes in the air fryer all the time and I'll sprinkle nutritional yeast on top of potatoes. It's great to add to a bowl of soup. It's easy to add to food, even on popcorn, sprinkle it on popcorn. It's really, really good. 
Next, I would incorporate selenium. I think most people can benefit from supplementing selenium. Most people are not getting enough in their diet, and it's important for production of antioxidant enzymes in the liver, um, which may help protect the liver from oxidative stress. Anything that is an antioxidant, again, is going to protect the liver. We lose antioxidants when we are exposed to oxidative stress, things that are inflammatory in nature. Um, Next, I want to talk about Tudka. Okay, Tudka, I'm not going to try to pronounce what it the what the whole word is. It's tarodeoxycholic acid. <laughs> I just murdered that name. Tudka, T-U-D-C-A. This is a naturally occurring bile acid that's produced in small amounts in your body, but you can also take it as a supplement. It's excellent for your liver and supporting liver detox. It helps promote bile flow. It protects the liver cells. It has anti-inflammatory effects, antioxidant effects, improves insulin sensitivity, supports the cell's mitochondria. This is a very beneficial thing to incorporate into a, a protocol for someone that maybe needs some extra liver support. Choline is another thing that you can incorporate. We do get choline through food, but some people can benefit from incorporating that through a supplement. Very essential for liver health and the metabolism of fats in the liver. Vitamin E is another antioxidant that can help protect liver cells from oxidative damage. Most of us are not getting enough vitamin E in our diet, and so supplementing some vitamin E can be very beneficial. And now I want to talk about some tools and different modalities that you can incorporate for your liver. Number one that I'm a big fan of, I've been doing this pretty consistently for a couple years now. I will say during the summer, I kind of fell off of the routine with this, but castor oil packs. So this has been around for a very long time. This is nothing new, but in the functional health world, this you'll probably see this talked about a lot if you follow different functional nutritionists or health coaches people in the crunchy wellness world. It is a little weird the first couple times you do it, you're like, okay, what is this actually doing? So basically what you do is you can take felt, wool, uh, or flannel, or you can buy a pre-made pack. There's a bunch of different packs on Amazon or wraps, if you will. It's not necessarily a pack. It's like a wrap that wraps around your midsection. The first time I did it, I took an old flannel shirt and I cut it into like eight by eight squares. I did like three or four layers. So it was this thick piece of fabric. And then I soaked it in castor oil. You want to use an organic hexane-free castor oil that's in a glass bottle. That's really important to know. And you put that compress of castor oil right over your liver, which is your lower right rib cage. And then what I did is I put like a, a cheap bath towel or like a hand towel over that pack so that the castor oil wouldn't get like on my clothing or on my bedding or whatever. And lay in bed and you watch a show at night with your castor oil pack over your liver. Or if you get the wrap, the nice thing about the wrap is it does allow you to get up and do things. So sometimes I'll wear a castor oil wrap in the morning while I'm like getting the kids stuff ready for school or cleaning my house, doing some laundry while I'm getting ready for the day. Sometimes I wear it In the evening, while I'm like cleaning up the kitchen, putting away stuff from the day, I personally really like wearing it at night. So I've worked up to wearing it overnight on my liver while I sleep. 
and I have noticed massive improvements in my sleep. In fact, if you wear an aura ring, I'm a big fan of the aura ring. It's interesting to see how it can improve some of your sleep metrics, like your REM sleep or your deep sleep. I do notice a difference when I do wear a castor oil pack. I don't wear one every night just because it's kind of cumbersome to wear, but I do wear it a couple times a week. I'd say two to three times a week, especially during the luteal phase, that second half of the menstrual cycle after your body ovulates, that 10 to 14 day time frame is crucial for supporting your liver. And so I will really pick up some of those habits, especially during that part of my of my menstrual cycle. I do recommend that if you're new to doing castor oil packs to go slow. I would start out with like an hour, maybe two hours and work up to wearing it overnight after you've slowly incorporated it because it does increase detox. And some people, when they increase liver detox, they don't feel great. I've had people complain about getting headaches, nausea, just it starts mobilizing things. And sometimes that doesn't always feel good. So go slow. You don't want to do it when you're on your menstrual cycle. You don't want to do it if you're pregnant. And if there's mixed mixed arguments on whether or not it is safe to do if you're breastfeeding. So that is an individual decision. I, I recommend do your research and, and make that decision of whether or not that's something you feel comfortable with doing. It's a very individual decision. So next, I want to talk about coffee enemas, which I will say I am interviewing a colleague, uh, Heather Germain. Her Instagram is Simple Soul AZ. She's a good friend and also a fellow uh, integrative nutritionist, health practitioner, health coach. She's awesome. So she's coming on the podcast Friday. I'm interviewing her. So this podcast episode will go live next week. And we are talking all about coffee enemas and parasite cleansing and detoxing. She's like the queen of detox stuff. She's like super consistent with dry brushing. She talks about castor oil packs and coffee enemas. And she's just, she's got the the wellness routines down. So I'm excited to have her on. And we're going to be answering all of the questions that people have about coffee enemas, but I'll give you a quick brief overview. I am familiar with them. I've done them many times. So they're kind of controversial, but they are believed to stimulate the liver's release of stored toxins. The coffee solution, which you want to use a a type of coffee that is designed for coffee enemas. You don't want to go use like your regular, (laughs) your regular coffee. Um, And so you prepare it a certain way on the stove, you, you know, boil it down and then you uh, filter it through. I filter it through like a brown coffee filter and you are putting that in either a coffee enema bucket or an enema bag and you are pushing that through into your colon and you are holding it in your colon for 10 to 15 minutes is the goal. I will say when you are new to doing a coffee enema it is not comfortable to do more than a few minutes. Most people have a really hard time holding it in at first. You really get that urge you need to go to the bathroom. But the longer that you hold it in, the more it gets to do its thing. It's known to massively increase glutathione production. The caffeine in it is believed to stimulate the liver to produce bile. It enhances liver detox by increasing that flow of bile and promoting the release of toxins from the liver and gallbladder into the intestines, which then 
leads to elimination of those waste and toxins from the body through your bowel movements. It does have antioxidant properties, which again, I've said multiple times, can reduce oxidative stress in the liver and protect your liver cells from damage. I will say, I think it is a fantastic tool for just cleaning you out. Um, The first time I did it, I was like super nervous and hesitant and kind of like, oh, I don't know if I want to do this and whatever. You know, we like make these things up in our minds to be like such a big deal. But after you do it, you're like, that really was not that big of a deal. And afterward, you feel amazing. Truly, every time I do a castor oil pack, I'm like, wow, why don't I do this more often? Sorry, not castor oil pack, coffee enema. Wow, why why don't I do this more often? Again, you feel like super cleared out. You feel lighter, more energy. I just, I personally really like them. You definitely want to be mindful of how often you do them. I do not recommend doing them all the time. Like you will see some people that do coffee enemas multiple times a week. I think that's a bit overkill. They can be depleting. Again, we're going to talk about that more on next week's episode. If you have lots of questions on coffee enemas or you're interested, intrigued, that's definitely an episode you're going to want to listen to. And then next, real quick, I want to talk about liver flushes. I've never done a liver flush, but I know people that have. I'm familiar with them. So it's kind of known as like a liver cleanse or a gallbladder cleanse. This is a regimen that helps detox the liver and gallbladder by promoting the removal of gallstones or liver toxins. So it typically involves ingesting a combination of ingredients, which might include olive oil, lemon juice, and Epsom salts over the course of a day or night. And these ingredients are thought to soften and release gallstones from the gallbladder and promote their elimination through bowel movements. They help detox the liver by, again, flushing out toxins They can improve digestion and really alleviate symptoms like bloating and indigestion, said to increase energy levels. Again, I've not personally tried this, so I cannot speak to what the process feels like or what's fully involved, but in the functional health world, it is something that some people do choose to do. And then next, I want to talk about testing to assess your liver health. I will say there's not a one test that's best for assessing the liver. The GI map test, which is a stool test I do with many, many clients, that can provide insights into your liver function by assessing markers related to your bile production and your digestion, obviously looking at your gut microbiome. But specifically, there's a marker on the GI map that can give us a lot of clues about your liver. It's called beta-glucuronidase. This is an enzyme that is produced by certain bacteria in your gut microbiome, and its primary role is to break down glucuronides, which are conjugated compounds that are formed in the liver during phase two detox. Conjugation is that process in which your liver binds toxins and waste. It makes them more water soluble so that they get eliminated through the body, through the urine and the feces. When we have elevated beta-glucuronidase activity in the gut, which you'll see that there's a marker that'll, you know, it'll, it'll show up as high, it can lead to the deconjugation or uncoupling of those glucuronidides, which means that those toxins and waste products that were supposed to be eliminated can actually be released back into your body for circulation potentially becoming reabsorbed. And this will place additional burden on your liver, 
um, as your liver then has to process through these substance again. It just ultimately is a sign of a liver that's overburdened, sluggish, struggling to detox. Um, that high beta-glucuronidase activity can also suggest an imbalance in the gut microbiome, which is often influenced by your diet. Uh, taking certain medications, hormonal birth control massively affects the gut microbiome, antibiotics. Um, it's linked to elevated bacteria or pathogens in the gut. This enzyme it just indicates that the liver is having to work harder to maintain your detox pathways and eliminate waste efficiently. It also affects the metabolism of your hormones, particularly estrogen. So if we see high levels of that enzyme, we can almost always assume that that person is potentially dealing with reabsorption of estrogen metabolites, which further drives that estrogen dominance situation. So can get, you can connect a lot of dots here with just that one marker on a test. And then, of course, there's blood work that can be done. Certain markers can give clues of liver function, including ALT, AST, ALP, bilirubin, albumin, total protein, C-reactive protein. Um, this is where like doing a full CBC panel can really be helpful. And then I want to talk about the Dutch test. So the Dutch Complete, which is a urine test, it's a very comprehensive hormone test that not only looks at hormone levels, but also what are those metabolites doing in the body. I explain a lot more in detail about what these different functional labs are on uh, the functional lab episode. I think that was episode 19, but, or no, episode 18, excuse me, episode 18. I'll link it in the notes so you can access it, but specifically with the Dutch test, how we can get insights with the liver. So your estrogen metabolites, the Dutch measures different estrogen metabolites. There's three metabolites, 2-hydroxyestrone, 2-OH, 4-hydroxyestrone, which is 4-OH, and 16-alpha-hydroxyestrone, 16-AOH. If there's an imbalance in these metabolites, there's certain pathways that your estrogen pushes estrogen down in the body. I like to describe this when I'm reviewing this lab with a client, I'm like, think about your estrogen going down a fork in the road. It can go down one of three pathways. And depending on where estrogen is being pushed down, which part of the road, that can give us clues of what that estrogen's doing in the body. And the liver plays a crucial role in this whole dynamic here. And we can get a lot of clues about what's happening with your liver by assessing your estrogen metabolism. There's also methylation markers. Methylation is a process in which your body detoxes and eliminates various substances, including your hormones. And so on the Dutch test, there's a specific marker that can indirectly reflect your liver's ability to perform certain methylation processes, even your cortisol. So your Dutch test assesses cortisol levels and their metabolites Elevated cortisol levels can often obviously be associated with stress because it is a stress hormone, but the production of cortisol is actually a process that really does involve the liver. So cortisol is produced by the adrenal glands, but it's metabolized and cleared from the body involving the liver. So it's carried in the bloodstream bound to carrier proteins. And once cortisol reaches the liver, it undergoes metabolism. In the liver, it's converted into its inactive form known as cortisone, which we can see markers of that on your Dutch test. 
And this conversion is essential to regulate the biological effects of cortisol, as cortisone is much less active than cortisol. And so the balance of cortisol and cortisone and whether or not cortisol is sticking around in the body longer than it should be, these again are markers that we can see on a Dutch test that can give us clues about the liver as well. Well, we're going to wrap up today's deep dive on the liver. If you have any questions, you can message me on Instagram or shoot us an email, fueledandfreepodcast at gmail.com. And as always, the information on this episode and all of our episodes is meant to be for educational purposes only, not to be taken as personalized medical advice. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you on next week's episode. Thank you for listening to the Fueled and Free podcast. Please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Learn more at margaretannpowell.com and follow me on Instagram at margaretannpowell.com.